Hello and welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by James Burton Harris to discuss his book, Once Upon a Time at the Opera House, Drama at Three Historic Michigan Theaters, 1882-1928. Thanks for tuning in. Once Upon a Time at the Opera House explores the importance of opera houses to the cultural and community lives of non-metropolitan areas in Michigan. As both the civic and arts center for the community, the local opera house was a venue for community meetings, political rallies, concerts, lectures, and theatrical entertainments. This beautifully illustrated and often humorous volume offers readers the chance to encounter historical facts, anecdotes, urban legends, and tall tales associated with three of the more than 100 opera houses that existed in Michigan in the period spanning the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. A kind of storybook about the golden age of opera houses in many of America's rural regions, Once Upon a Time at the Opera House is a truly fascinating compendium of American entertainment culture, architecture, and civic life in the history of three Michigan buildings. I'm excited to discuss Once Upon a Time at the Opera House today with the book's author, James Burton Harris. Active in both academic and professional theater for 45 years, Harris is Professor Emeritus of Theater at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and has been a member of the theater faculty at the University of Michigan and Boston University. He's worked extensively as a costume designer at regional theaters and Shakespeare festivals across the country, and his New York credits include on and off Broadway, as well as at the Circle Repertory Company, Manhattan Theater Club, and the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Professor Harris, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a great opportunity to talk about my book. Yeah, I'm very excited to get into it. And one of the things I think we should start with uh, is a possible misconception regarding the book's title. Uh, and you covered this a little bit in the introduction. You say that the buildings that you describe were all called opera houses, uh, but that means something quite different at the turn of the 20th century than we would assume today. Could you start by telling us what did it mean to call a building an opera house? An opera house was more of a generic term than it is today. Today it has a more specific connotation. Uh, and it was... Um, interchangeable with a playhouse and with theater. And these were essentially theaters, but uh, the name theater was, was uh, questionable for, for several reasons. And so opera house was uh, really a euphemism. And in these theaters or opera houses, they presented, as you mentioned, various kinds of entertainment and uh, civic events. What they didn't present was opera. Yeah, so there were no um, extended Beethoven or Mozart operas and um, singing fat ladies, but rather, well, they may have been singing fat ladies in different forms, but not the kind of traditional opera that we think of when we think of that word. That's correct. Um, occasionally, there would uh, an opera company would come through and do one or two operas. But um, I think in the years covered in the book, uh, the Croswell Opera House perhaps did um, presented six operas over that period of 55 years. Uh, they did do operettas. Gilbert and Sullivan was popular. Uh, American, other American operettas uh, were performed, but grand opera was seldom, if ever, performed. 
I really do want to get into um, some of the things that actually did appear. But now that we've kind of cleared up the misconceptions surrounding the name, I thought it would be useful to spend a little bit of time talking about your interests in opera houses uh, and how you settled on the three specific ones that you did. You worked mostly in costumes, is that uh, right? Yeah, I was a, a costume designer. I taught, I taught design uh, at the University of Illinois and the other institutions that you mentioned. Um, and I work professionally as a costume designer. And so what brought you to thinking about uh, the architecture and the buildings themselves? Uh, it actually says a long story, uh, or, or I should say it's a, um, a story that took place over a long period of time. It actually started in the, in the 60s um, when I graduated from the University of Michigan with my undergraduate degree. Um, I had more experience as an actor than I did as a costume designer at that point. And I got a job for the summer as an actor with a company out of Detroit that was taking over the Ramsdale Theater in Manistee for the summer. And uh, I arrived in Manistee. And of course, I didn't know the history of this, the, the town. I didn't know that at one time it was a, a major lumbering um, city and a very important port on the, um, on the Great Lakes. Uh, so what I saw was a very small community and this beautiful historic opera house, although I didn't know it was historic at the time. And I was curious to know what the incentive could have been to build it in this small, modest town and what, what supported it, uh, what they did in the theater. Uh, what did people come to see? Why was it there? Of course, I never thought to ask anybody at the time, <laughs> uh, and, but, it, but it was in the back of, of my head. Then the next year, I was invited to uh, work as a, as a designer actor at the Calumet Theater. Uh, and so I went up to the Upper Peninsula and I worked there for three summers and I had the same reaction. And at that time, Calumet was really a ghost town. Um, the copper mines had closed. Um, the economy was in the basement. Uh, there were more shops closed and boarded up on Main Street than there, than there were open. Um, and again, here was, was this beautiful ornamental, uh, of, of the three theaters, the uh, Calumet Theater is the most um, ornamented, beautiful theater from the turn of the century in this virtual ghost town. And again, I was curious to know why, why it was built in the first place. And again, I didn't realize that Calumet at one time had produced 95% of the copper in this country. So this was in the back of my head. Uh, flash forward uh, about 40 years, when I was ready to retire from the University of Illinois, uh, people, as they do, uh, would ask me what I was going to do in retirement. And I don't know what made me say it. It came out of nowhere. Uh, but I said, you know, I've always been interested to know about these opera houses in Michigan and how they came to be built and what was done in them. I, I, I may do some research about that. And I never really meant to do it. Um, but then I had, as fate would have it, I was traveling to northern Michigan and I passed the Ramsdale Theater <clears throat> on my way up. And there was a, uh, one of those tent signs in front saying that they were establishing or that they were giving tours that day in about an hour. And I thought, well, that'll be fun and nostalgic. And so I did that. And I came out of the theater and I said, you know, I think I'm really going to do this. And I did it. 
such a great story that it that it builds on you know a sort of history of interest in these things and then them just kind of being fixtures for so long that you don't know about what happened in them or where they came from uh, and that just sort of stuck with you for all that time until you had the moment to take it up i really appreciate hearing that one can have a project that spans that period of time you talked about having a personal connection to a couple of the theaters that you deal with. And in, in the book, you mentioned that there's more than 100 theaters in Michigan in this period, which is kind of a shocking number if you really think about it. I'm assuming the two that you picked were for personal reasons. Was that same with the cold water or why did you settle on the three houses that you did? It was not a conscious decision. Um, I started out thinking I was going to do the entire history from the time they opened until the time the book was published uh, of five theaters. And when I got into um, doing the research, I realized that I had bitten off much more than I could chew, that it was kind of overwhelming. Um, so the first decision I made was to cut one of the theaters and uh, the other two um, that I was considering uh, were the um, Croswell Opera House in Adrian and the Opera House in Sheboygan. And I cut the Sheboygan Opera House first um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I decided that I wanted to do only standalone theaters rather than theaters that were built on the second floor of another building. And uh, that's the situation in Sheboygan. Uh, the other thing that, that uh, decided me to discard that theater is that whereas the interior of the auditorium has been maintained or uh, restored, uh, and it looks as, as it did at the turn of the century, the outside of the building was uh, reworked and I would guess from the look of it in the 1960s. And it's uh, a, a totally different architecture than it would have been when it opened in the 1980s. And so I thought, well, this, this is the one to let go of. And then um, I actually wrote the two chapters that I did for the other three uh, opera houses. I, I wrote the same two chapters for the theater in Adrian, and that was all ready to go. But then um, I was told that the book was too long as it was, and so I was going to make interior cuts, and I started doing that, and I felt like I was I was um, undermining what I really wanted to do in, in the degree of detail that I wanted to handle these theaters. And so I eliminated the opera house in um, Adrian, and the reason that I used for that, or the rationale, was that it didn't really open to be a theater. It opened to be, it was originally called the Adrian Union Hall. And it was open to be a, a more of a meeting place um, than it was to present theatrical entertainment. And they didn't even have a fly loft that, um, uh, that was built much later. So I decided to dis discard that. And so that left me with the three that are in the book. And as you said, um, I did have a connection with two of them. And I was offered work for uh, two different summers at the theater in Coldwater. So in, in a way, I had a connection with that one too. So that left me with those three. And the other advantage of those three is they each represent another uh, region in the state, one being in Southern Michigan, one being in Northern Michigan, and one being in the Upper Peninsula. And I like that. I like that idea. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me to hear that you found yourself crammed 
for space because when you really start getting into the history of these both the history of the buildings you know what went into building them uh, and what happened there what you know what was presented and who was involved in presenting things at the different opera houses the histories are so rich and there's just so much to learn about every one of them that to try to do five i can see how that would have gotten really unmanageable and also to do them up until this time and frankly uh, sometime between 1920s and the 1950s, each of them became movie theaters for a while. Yeah. And that didn't really interest me very much. Uh, and so I thought, well, I'm just going to take them up to 1928, which is when um, the Calumet Theater presented its last professional touring production and became uh, more involved in movies um, and just focus on that period. And then that somehow made it manageable. Um, the other thing that was suggested to me was um, someone asked um, why I was bothering to include the synopses of, of plays and the uh, biographies of the actors. But it was very important to me to understand and for others to understand what brought these people to the theater. What, what, what plays did they see and what were these plays about? Being in the theater myself, I had always heard of the play East Lynn, and I knew it was the iconic melodrama of the turn of the century, but I had no idea what the plot was. And I thought, uh, and I didn't until I started doing research. And I thought, here's this play that I've heard referred to and that I know what it represents, and yet I have, I'm clueless as to what, what the plot was. It was one of the most produced plays of its time. And so I finally read it, and now I know. And I thought, well, other people might want to know what this play is about. So those synopses were very important to me, as were the biographies of the people who actually um, crossed the stages. And uh, I, I, I was kind of adamant about including those in the book. I think that was a really good decision, because the uh, honestly, one of the real things that struck me in, in reading the book is the degree to which this kind of industry of individuals building opera houses was able to plug into an, an American cultural machine. Like you say that the um, that East Lynn was this super widely produced play, but then they were receiving touring companies who were putting on the same performances all over the place. And um, so you see this the way that these theaters participated in disseminating an American culture to even the most rural parts of Michigan that was consistent with all over the place. And the same is true of the celebrities who came through or the people who were you know, famous on the stage. I was really surprised to find out um, that some of the nation's most famous actors and actresses were up in Calumet doing, putting on the same shows that they were everywhere else. That's true. That's true. People like Sarah Bernhardt and uh, uh, Richard Mansfield, who were very prominent actors. Maude Adams, who was the original American Peter Pan, um, uh, appeared in, in Calumet. Um, of course, the draw was that Calumet was a very wealthy town at the time um, and had very influential uh, citizens, uh, some of them from New York, uh, many of them from Boston. Uh, the money to support the copper industry came from the East Coast, and um, and and executives came with them, uh, or with it, uh, with the money, and uh, and they lived up there. And so there was there was a draw. But when we think of the Upper Peninsula today, it, it is 
um, surprising that that uh, that someone like Sarah Bernhardt, who was known internationally, uh, would travel, but she did. And um, the story in the book, which I, I I thought was fascinating, and I had never known the story until I started doing research and reading newspapers uh, of the period, is that she insisted on being taken down in the mine and. Uh, uh, that was unusual. Women, there was a superstition that, that women going down in the mines was bad luck, but she was adamant about it. And she showed up in her seal coat and was told that if she went down in the mine, the seal coat might be ruined. And she said, well, that's too bad for the coat, isn't it? Uh, and down she went. Uh, uh, and, and there were pictures of her with a little, one of those little mining lights in, you know, stuck in her hat. Um, so yeah, there are wonderful stories, but these people did. They they uh, they came up. Uh, Richard Mansfield, who was considered the greatest actor of his time by some people, um, only played in, in major metropolitan areas, uh, Boston, New York, uh, and he also played in San Francisco, which was a booming theater town. And on his way to San Francisco, he happened to have a uh, after playing in Chicago, he had a couple of days free, and they convinced him to come to Calumet. Um, which is the kind of town that he never played in, but he did make the trip to Calumet um, to do his the show that he had just done on Broadway. That's so fascinating. W one of the things that you said in your response uh, got me to think about the origin of one of these opera houses, and I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about you know how these things get built before we get too immersed in thinking about what happened inside of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd said that you had, uh, you know, you have executives in Calumet who've got money from the copper industry or elsewhere from shipping in Manistee, maybe. I wonder if you could tell a little bit of the story of the Tibbetts Opera House. Yeah, the Tibbetts Opera House in Coldwater. Um, yeah. It was it was primarily underwritten by one person who was um, Mr. Mr. Tibbetts. Uh, he was the mayor of um, Coldwater, and the original idea to build the opera house, they, they had had something called um, Guild Hall or something where they did plays, and that burned down. And so they were without any, any place to do um, touring, professional touring theater productions uh, or to have meetings. Um, someone complained about the fact that that uh, there were even there weren't even any dances one could go to because there was no place um, to host them. So um, an art dealer named Mr. Um, well, he was an art gallery. He wasn't a dealer. He was an art gallery owner named Mr. Lewis came up with the idea of building an opera house, and he thought it could be done for sixteen thousand uh, dollars. This is in eighteen eighty two or probably eighteen eighty one actually. Um, and he went to Mr. Tibbetts, who was the mayor, and said, if you can raise, uh, get people to contribute and raise another $8,000, I will contribute $8,000 and we can build this opera house. And uh, Mr. Tibbetts, who was quite a character, uh, tried for about 10 minutes and then uh, said, well, I can't raise the money from anybody, so I'm just going to pay for the whole thing myself and it's going to be called the Tibbetts Opera House, and it's going to be my contribution to the city. And he got his money from cigars, is that no, right? He, was, he owned the largest cigar factory outside of Detroit, and he um, had other real estate holdings and, and, uh, and other sources of income. 
So uh, it ended up costing something between twenty-five and fifty thousand um, dollars. So Mr. Mr. Lewis's estimate was a little low, uh, but he sunk money in it and it opened. Uh, but by 1885, it was operating in the red, and um, he had pretty much depleted his um, sources of revenue. He sold a lot of real estate, um, and he was on the verge of bankruptcy, and so he sold it, and he sold it for about half of what uh, he had paid for it after three years. Um, but it retained his name simply because citizens believed it was such a major contribution to the, the city and that he was the, uh, the strength behind it. He was the mover and the shaker to get it done. Um, so he sold it to a, a German gentleman who owned a saloon uh, for about $13,000. And um, the German gentleman um, expanded the offerings a little bit. He, he offered more things like wrestling matches and boxing matches, uh, although he, he still presented concerts and uh, theatrical performances by touring companies. And he opened a saloon in the basement, but the saloon didn't do well. And so then uh, he turned it over to his wife who turned it into a tea room. Uh, but eventually he thought he was going to have to sell it as well. Uh, but somehow he managed to carry on. And then his daughter, Hulda, started as a teenager working in the box office. And she was so accomplished that eventually she started managing the theater, writing the contracts, um, deciding what groups they were going to bring in. She often signed her father's name because in this period, for a woman, especially one that young, to be managing the theater was uh, an anomaly. And she did manage the theater for several years. And then she married a man who was a, uh, the manager of a touring company who had, uh, out of New York, who had a lot of theatrical savvy, um, Mr. Jackson. And he took over and became the manager for over 25 years. And he's the one who brought it out of the red and made it successful. Uh, he had the, um, uh, the business experience and um, the theatrical savvy to, to figure out how to make it work. Uh, so that's the story of the Tippett's Opera House. Yeah, that's great. And all, and all three of the opera houses, and I imagine every one of these buildings has um, a colorful story behind it. I wonder about uh, if you could say a little bit about the Calumet Theater, um, particularly <laughs> it's haunted, maybe? Well, first of all, let me say this. The Calumet Theater, uh, these theaters were financed in various ways, both both the, um, the Croswell, as we just uh, mentioned, and the Ramsdale were primarily underwritten by one individual. The Calumet Theater, however, is one of the first municipally owned, I can't say that word today, uh, theaters in the country, in that it was it was uh, paid for by by bonds um, that were taken out, um, city bonds. Okay. That being said, what was your question again? Well, that was we could. I think we could we could spend a little bit of time on that because that was the subject of some um, prolonged newspaper conflict about the cost of building the theater. Well, they had. Um, they had built about 13 years before the Calumet Theater opened. They had built um, what was called 
um, the Red Jacket. Uh, Calumet, by the way, was originally uh, named Red Jacket, and, and the name was not changed until 1929. Before 1929, the, the village was Red Jacket. And they, they built what was called the Red Jacket Opera House, which was on the second floor of the uh, town hall. And it was really just um, a building with a small stage at one end but it had no backstage area and uh, it was very limited in what they could do there. Um, they did minstrel shows and, um, but they brought in very few touring theater companies and touring theater companies didn't want to play there because they couldn't use their scenery or if they did use any scenery, they had a, uh, hoisted up a, a flight of stairs. So after 13 years, they decided to build an opera house. The, the city council, went to the community and uh, they had a vote and they asked if they would be willing for the um, the common council to borrow the money in order to build this opera house this theater and some people were uh, citizens um, were adamantly against it they uh, they thought they had a perfectly good uh, opera house on the second floor of the town hall and they had recently spent some money uh, buying new chairs and and uh, I think lighting equipment something else and they they thought that they should not be taxed for a new building that was not uh, was extraneous in their mind and uh, however they they had the vote and the majority um, voted for the taxes and then certain citizens came back and said, well, um, it wasn't clear that the first vote was to go ahead with this. They thought that the first vote was just to see how much interest there was in pursuing this. And, uh, and this went on and on. And, and they, they had, I think, three different votes that they went to the, the community. And the community always, by a slight majority, voted with the Common Council. So eventually, um, it was built. And it um, it caught fire in 1918. Oh uh, yeah, that was a bad year. They had closed the theater because of the um, influenza pandemic, uh, and um, and they just opened it again. And within a week, uh, a man was walking down the street late at night and saw smoke coming out of the basement, and the whole um, stage house was burnt. Fortunately, they had an asbestos curtain which saved the auditorium. But the um, the stage house was was burnt and had to be rebuilt, and so the theater remained closed for several months while they did that. Yeah, yeah. And fire was a real concern in the sort of wooden building opera houses of this period. There was a big one in Chicago in 1903. Oh yeah, then which was very influential influential because of that fire. Theaters across the country all invested in asbestos curtains and um, other preventative measures, like all, all doors had to open outwards, um, but it really changed um, in a good way. I mean, even though the, the Chicago fire was tragic, uh, the, the uh, positive reaction to the fire was that it made theaters across the country much, much safer. It's, it's really interesting to see uh, in the, you've got some advertisements and some newspaper editorials, some like editorial cartoons in the book, um, depicting resistance to theater culture by, by way of referencing the fire. Like, do you really want to go and die in a flaming opera house? 
uh, in order to go see Faust or whatever? Uh, yeah, they do. And, and especially uh, the ones on the second floor. They, they were more of a fire trap than the, the standalone uh, theaters, like, like the three in the book. Uh, but all those theaters on the second floor um, often had limited egress. And, and so, uh, uh, so they were very dangerous. They were very dangerous. Now, you asked about ghosts. Yes, I did want to. I did. Before we leave the Calumet Theater, I did want to hear the story of Helena Modeska. Uh-huh. So she's rumored to haunt the Calumet Theater. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little. <laughs> I must admit, I'm a little suspect about the story. She was uh, a Polish actress um, who came to this country and began acting here. She toured more than she played in New York. She was not a, uh, a New York actor, although she did appear in New York. But, uh, and she appeared uh, opposite people like Edwin Booth, um, John Wilkes' brother. But anyway, she played at the Calumet Theater two or three times. And, um, and then she went back to California, uh, where she lived, and she died in California, and her body was sent to, back to Poland, and she was buried in Poland. But there was a young actress in 1958 who um, was playing the, the leading character, the leading woman in Taming of the Shrew. And uh, one night she came out on stage and she, um, it, it looked as if, she later claimed that she had not forgotten her lines, but it appeared as if she had forgotten her lines. And suddenly she saw Madame Majeska standing next to a, at first she said a spotlight on the second balcony. And Madame Majeska gave her the lines and she was able to finish the show. And that was her first story. Then later in an interview, uh, she said, no, 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 she wasn't on, um, in the second balcony. She was in the first balcony. And if anybody has ever stood on stage with lights in their eyes, you cannot see anything other than a silhouette. Um, so if Madame Jessica was standing next to a spotlight, as she originally claimed, there was no way that she could have made out the features. But who knows? I mean, maybe ghosts have special qualities that they can uh, do th things when they stand next to a spotlight that the rest of us can't do. But anyway, she held firm to her story. However, her story slightly changed each time she told it. Well, there were people who bought into the story and um, claimed to have seen a woman in a velvet gown walking around the theater at various times, and, and they were sure it was Madame Majeska. When I first started working <laughs> on this project, I was interviewing the person who was at the time the uh, executive director of the Calumet Theater. And he said, um, the people asked him why he didn't want to bring in a, a group that looks for that kind of activity in a building. And he said, uh, he said, we get a lot of tourists through here because of those stories. And he said, I don't want to bring in a group who tells me there is no activity in this building <laughs> because we won't get that source of revenue. <laughs> but uh, the next executive director was fascinated by the story and she brought in um, groups on three different occasions and they all confirmed that there was some kind of paranormal activity going on in the building. Whether it was the madam herself, I don't know but uh, something apparently is going on up there. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with James Burton Harris, author of Once Upon a Time at the Opera House, Drama at Three Historic Michigan Theaters, 1882 through 1928. 
that's a great story about the haunting. And I love that the history of these places clings to them, you know, that they're, that there's still a sort of attempt on their behalf. A lot of them have been restored or refurbished to look as they did at the turn of the century uh, and have tried to hold on to their important role in the community. You know, in some cases, as in the case of the ghost and Calumet by whatever means available. <laughs> I'd like to talk, I'd like, we talked a little bit about some of the things that folks might have seen. And, and I talked earlier about my sort of fascination with the cultural consistency. Could we talk a little bit about popular plays that appeared and how these opera houses went about programming their events? What did they do to get shows into them? And what were the shows? Well, to answer your first, your first question, uh, most of these theaters were on a circuit and um, they were given options um, of what was available. And then they could select, it was like a, a menu. They could select the shows that they wanted to bring in. They were encouraged, because it was a circuit, they were encouraged, and they did do this, to um, bring in the same shows that other theaters were doing at about the same time. So, um, for example, because of the, the close proximity of the Croswell Opera House in Adrian and the Tibbetts Opera House in Coldwater, uh, as I went through the production histories, I would realize that uh, a theater production would play uh, one of them one night and the other one the next night. Uh, and, or, and sometimes, you know, the order would reverse, but it was the same. And they were obviously moving from... Chicago to Detroit or Detroit to Chicago. And these were two convenient stops along the way. And they also sometimes would go from Southern Michigan to Northern Michigan and play the Manistee. Uh, and and uh, one would see that connection that, you know, two days late after playing the Tibbets, they were at the Ranchdale Theater. So that's the way they, they got in. They, they were told what was available or they, they were, uh, that information was made known to uh, whoever was doing uh, putting together the season, and then they would they would pick and choose what they wanted. How many like repertory companies were there traveling around at this period in American history? Do you have a sense? Uh, well, there are two different there there are two different things traveling around. Um, first of all, there is um, as there is today, there is one show that would play one night at these various theaters, um, and. Then there were stock companies, and that was a group of actors uh, with um, a number of well-rehearsed plays, and they would come to one of these theaters, and they would be there for about a week, and they did uh, traditionally six plays in five days. They did wow. Saturday matinee, and every, every night and the matinee was a different play, uh, and so you could come, if you really were a theater junkie, you could come for an entire, well, for five nights and one, one matinee and see six different plays done by the same group of actors. And they became a staple in these, um, in the programming of these theaters. Uh, there might be, um, in, uh, in one season, there might be as many as six uh, different stock companies that would come and take over six weeks of, um, of entertainment. Um, so we had both of those. The plays range, there were, there were before the turn of the century, they were primarily melodramas and musical comedies and operettas uh, or musical examples of musical theater. And as I said, everything but grand opera. 
and comedies, uh, very silly comedies. Faust was very, which is interesting. Faust, Faust was was very popular, but they they embellished it with a lot of um, special effects. And I suspect the draw, uh, based on the reviews and the advertisements, the draw was as much the special effects as the story of Faust. Mm. Um, but you could come and see um, a keg of beer that, that burst into flames and uh, other other things that were considered to be spectacular at the time. Among all of those professional theater productions, there was uh, a symphony orchestras, the Boston Symphony, the Chicago Symphony played at these theaters. Uh, John Philip Sousa's band played at these theaters. Um, there were famous uh, virtuoso artists, animal acts, magicians, mystics, wrestling and boxing matches. Now, the thing that came as perhaps the biggest surprise to me was the popularity of the minstrel show. Yeah, I was going to say we would be remiss if we didn't um, try to talk about it in some way, uh, because it does seem like, especially in your section on what happened at these theaters, that was so foundational to what was going on. Could you say a little bit about what a minstrel show looked like and and maybe speculate about its popularity? I could. I could. I, this is a... Uh, <laughs> yes, it's a subject of great interest to me. Um, I, I think what, the, what we've done as a, as a nation, as a country, is uh, kind of sweep that under the rug. The minstrel shows started as early as the 1830s, actually, and uh, and they and they started with um, one entertainer, a, na- a man named Thomas Rice, and he developed an act all by himself that he did in blackface, and he said he based it on watching a a crippled staple hand, uh, a black uh, crippled staple hand dancing, and his character was name was Jim Crow. And he developed a dance called the Jim Crow Jump that he did that was very popular. And then that got expanded by the 1840s into a a group of four men in blackface, um, sitting facing the audience, playing various instruments, the banjo and so forth, uh, singing uh, various songs and telling jokes. And then eventually by the 1850s, that expanded to being hugely popular extravaganzas and the the first act of these minstrel shows uh, would start with what they called the walk around where the performers in blackface would come out and they would walk around the stage um, singing the opening song sometimes when somebody reached the center they would stop and do a little dance or something and then they settled down in to chairs um, in a semicircle facing the audience and on one end of the, the semicircle was Mr. Tambo, who played the tambourine. And on the other end of the semicircle was Mr. Bones, that played uh, originally two bones, animal bones, that they would um, knock together. And later they were pieces of wood and, and various other things that could be knocked together. And then the uh, interlocutor, who was the only character who was not in blackface, uh, was in the middle. And they would have conversations, uh, the interlocutor would have conversations with either Mr. Bones or Mr. Tambo or both. And they ended up being jokes, um, as basic as, why did the chicken cross the road? 
Uh, and those kind of jokes came from minstrelsy, these very basic jokes. And then the second act was a series of specialty numbers that were done. And uh, this was the minstrel show. And they were, and I knew about them. In fact, the first live entertainment I ever saw, I grew up in um, Traverse City, Michigan. We lived there until I was 10. And when I was younger than 10, my parents took me to see a movie. And after the movie, some local service group, the Elks or the Moose or the Rotarians, were doing a fundraiser and the curtain went up and here were these local men, the doctor, the dentist, the man who was the manager of Woolworths, I don't know, uh, people that, from the community that we recognized. And they were all wearing this shiny black goo on their face, sitting in a semicircle, singing what I assume were Stephen Foster songs. And I didn't get it. I mean, I didn't know what that was on their faces or why it was there. But it was the first live theater I ever saw. And this would have been in the, in the 1950s. And so the minstrel show was still alive and well, at least in small communities, uh, well until I think probably this, the civil rights uh, movement. And even beyond, I mean, I, I work on a, a journal of popular culture. I'm an editor for them. Uh, and a, there's a lot of writing about the sort of hidden legacy of minstrelsy in Disney films and in animation that persists, you know, up until the present day, even um, in terms of mocking the dances or having like very recognizably minstrel character types that that continue in the culture. And it it's weird because it's one of these it's weird, shameful, I guess, even. Uh, it's like one of these foundational American sins. What, how, how much of what went on at the opera houses was supported by minstrelsy? What I learned, I, I, I taught a course for about 25 years at the University of Illinois in the history of the American musical theater. And of course, I researched minstrel shows as part of that because the, the good thing, if there is a good thing about minstrel shows, is that some of the um, approaches to choreography um, were absorbed by musical comedy in a very healthy way, not in a mocking way, but in a healthy way. Uh, they influenced, um, there was a dance, there was a dancer named Billy, I've forgotten Billy's last name, um, who was a very popular minstrel star. And, and, and people actually, uh, emulated some of the dance movements that he created, and again, in a good way, not in a mocking way, and incorporated them in, in musical comedy. Also, uh, people like uh, Dan Emmett and uh, Stephen Foster wrote for minstrel shows, and so a lot of our indigenous music uh, and some of our uh, very popular music of the period that is some of which is still sung today, like Dixie, came out of minstrel shows. And so, so there was a contribution. And minstrelsy, and you probably know this, is considered to be the first indigenous uh, theatrical form in, in this country. It's the first thing that was totally American, that it wasn't a copy of something that they were doing in Europe. However, what I didn't know, and is never mentioned in any of these books that write about minstrelsy, they, they'll tell you what it was and how it operated and what they wore. But nobody ever said until I started doing this research and reading uh, reviews and articles of the period that it was the most popular form of entertainment in this country. Um, 
And I think out of embarrassment and shame, we have swept that under the, the rug. I think it's something that nobody has ever mentioned. And as you know, I've been in the theater 45 years, and I did not know that until I read these reviews. Um, it's, it is one of the best kept theatrical secrets uh, in the country. And, it, and it's, well, it's shocking to me, I guess. Well, and it's hard to make that jibe with the other facts about the history of what went on at these theaters, because simultaneously to the popularity of minstrel shows, you also have the enormous nigh on exhausting popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin, like that that's produced and reproduced and over and over and over again to the point of insanity. There's so there's this weird tension there in this really exploitative you know, indeed shameful art form and also this thing that is exploitative in its own way, but is at least trying to suggest a better world. Interesting. The other factor that people don't realize or, or, or don't know, or, or most people outside of the theater don't know, is that um, even before the Civil War in the, South, in the North, and then after the Civil War in the South, um, there were groups of... Um, African-Americans who were presenting minstrel shows, but the only way they were acceptable to white audiences is if they wore the blackface makeup, that uh, if they were light-skinned um, and if they didn't have the grotesque uh, makeup revealing the mouth and the eyes, uh, they were unacceptable to American, I mean, to white audiences. And so you have these uh, black entertainers wearing blackface, which is, you know, What's that all about? Um, it's very complicated and, and hard to grapple with and understand what the appeal was or what kind of like what kind of processing we were trying to do as a culture by consuming that as rapid as rapidly as we did. And, you know, the, at the same time, um, ethnic plays and ethnic ethnic personalities were very popular. The Irish, there were a lot of plays about Irish Americans and, and Irish entertainers were very popular. And there were also plays about uh, Germans and, and Swedes, but they were never demeaning. They were never um, true. They were they were characterizations and stereotypes, but but they but they weren't demeaning. They weren't presented as being um, less intelligent or uh, less well educated than the members of the audience. Whereas that was not true of, of the minstrel shows. And you know, again, I, I just. It, it it just is unbelievable. <laughs> uh, um, anyway. Well, no, I mean, it is important. And I, we're obviously not going to solve the, the question of race in America in our in our brief conversation. But I do um, appreciate that we that we've touched on it and that you do cover it so thoroughly in the book, because, as you say, it's one of those things that is easily taken for granted uh, or or indeed written completely out of history as we talk about you know, people traveling around to do Shakespeare or going to see Faust or whatever the case might be. Well, I'm glad we, t we, we, we aired that as well. It's, uh, it, it, it has become a, an issue for me um, that I, th I think that, I think that we need to fess up and admit it and then, and then move forward. And I'm only sorry we can't solve those problems in this conversation. <laughs> oh, that we could. To, 
develop the conversation a little bit about what was going on. You know, there, there were minstrel shows, there were traveling plays, there were um, companies, stock companies coming through offering particular kinds of things. There were also, you know, celebrities and stars of the era. We talked about a few of them earlier. You mentioned John Philip Sousa making his way around. I was surprised to see L. Frank Baum make appearance in your book uh, as an actor and a playwright. You know, I sort of obviously associated with The Wizard of Oz. Uh, that's true. Uh, he started out as an actor playwright um, using the name um, Frank L. Baum. Uh, it wasn't until later in his life that he started writing the Wizard of Oz um, series of books. He came back to the theater when uh, the, the Wizard of Oz, the first of the of the series, was turned into a musical, uh, not to be confused with the 1939 film. He wrote the book and uh, the lyrics for this, um, this the musical version, um, and um, and it was uh, very popular. It was very popular uh, toward the country. Um, but he um, he left the theater at some point um, while he was still quite young and did many different things. He was the editor of a newspaper out west somewhere, and he uh, managed a, a, a store for a while. And he was kind of at loose ends. And someone, um, I read that it was his mother-in-law actually, uh, suggested to him that maybe he should write the stories that he told his children. That he uh, he made up these stories, uh, I guess, at bedtime for his for his kids. And so he sat down and and did that. And uh, the Wizard of Oz, uh, the wonderful Wizard of Oz, as the first book is called, uh, <coughs> uh, was an immediate hit. And he wrote, I think, 13 more or 12 more. I think there are a total of 13 in the series. And its legacy lives on in a touring production of, you know, The Wicked Show, which is sort of keeping this um, yes. economy of local theaters on its feet in some ways. Yes, you're right. You're right. Uh, and of course, there was The Wiz, which was was popular at the time that it came out. Uh <clears throat> Yeah, we've seen a, a lot of, uh, and of course, the movie, which is you know a classic. Well, I was going to ask if you had other, um, if you had other favorite stories about celebrities from this period, of, you know, who trod the boards. Well, a very interesting character was a, a, a man named Robert Mantell. Robert Mantell was an actor primarily in New York, and he was quite successful. However, he got into a lot of trouble. He deserted his wife. And the, uh, who was the mother of his two sons. And she came after him legally for lack of child support. And he was served with a warrant. And uh, so he had to get out of New York. And he left New York for a decade. And he spent that 10 years touring the country. And uh, uh, he, he eventually divorced his wife, uh, that first wife, and then was married three more times. And uh, I read somewhere just in passing that there was that 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 his two of his wives died young and there was some question about their death and so i don't know what all of that means but it, it's intriguing anyway uh, he finally solved all his legal problems and he went back to new york and by this time uh he was quite a mature actor and uh and king lear became his signature production and he was very successful uh performing it um but i but i I, I do think it's amusing that the reason he toured the country was that he that he couldn't go to New York, uh, 
and um, interestingly enough, he is the great uncle of Angela Lansbury. So there's a connection there. Yeah, there's a lot of entertainment families in the book. You have uh, Georgiana Drew Barrymore, the great grandmother of Drew Barrymore, or an aunt. Uh, no, she was the great grandmother. She was the she was the mother. Uh, yeah, Georgina Barrymore, uh, Georgina Drew Barrymore, was the mother of um, Ethel, John, and and Lionel Barrymore, and then uh, John Barrymore was the father of John Drew and Diana Barrymore, both of whom were actors, but were not nearly as successful as their predecessors. And then, of course, uh, John Drew Barrymore Jr. is the father of Drew Barrymore. So we have that family, um, and we have the uh, Joseph Jefferson family. Joseph Jefferson uh, made a career out of playing Rip Van Winkle, and he had three sons, and they were all very successful in the theater. And one of them took over the role of Rip Van Winkle and played it uh, for another 20 years. Yeah, there are a lot of <clears throat> acting dynasties. <laughs> yeah. I think that this, that the, all these details and the great stories about the kind of, as you say, acting dynasties or celebrities who made their way to Michigan really highlight the way in which these opera houses connected Michigan culture to the larger American culture. But the other thing that they did, and I'd kind of like to start wrapping up with a discussion of this is connect the communities that they that they served um, with each other and you know served them directly so they brought culture from outside but they also allowed um, little communities to do things that they wanted to do um, in the book you talk a little bit about how the calumet theater put on a lot of finnish programming for the local finnish community what are some of the other things that the opera houses did civically you know beyond providing entertainment for the communities that they served well, the uh, yeah, you're right. Because of the uh, large number of uh, of Finnish in in the population of Calumet, um, they uh, they they present plays in Finnish actually, uh, and by um, local Finnish performers. The Tibbetts Opera House, John Jackson, who was the uh, executive director who made a go of the theater, uh, opened the theater for a series of church services that they that were done by the local baptist church and the idea was not only to service the um, congregation of the baptist church but they thought it might attract people who normally would not would be reluctant to attend a traditional church service that they could get people to come to the opera house for a church service and uh, maybe recruit uh, um, some folks and he did that on consecutive Sundays uh, for several years, uh, for like four, four Sundays in one month or something. He didn't do it for the entire year. That's but. quite a turn on the puritanical uncertainty about the theater as a, you know, the devil's playground That's true. to turning it into a church. That's true. That's very true. And then he also opened it up for very civic uh, meetings. They, he made it available for temperance meetings when the whole temperance movement was on fire. And he opened it up for community meetings uh, when they were trying to decide um, whether or not they were going to renew the, the the town charter or come up with a new one. Um, so there were a lot of uh, uh, and political rallies. It was open to political rallies. Um, they they read the the results of elections from the stage. Some people found out how the election the results of the election by going to the theater. 
and hearing them announce there. So they were um, very, a very important civic center. Um, they had a dual purpose. One was to entertain and the other was to provide support for the community in various ways. The Ramsdale Theater has become the uh, Ramsdale Regional Center for the Arts. And they are offering everything from acting classes to art classes to uh, adult education. Um, uh, they have a speaker um, a series. I was there uh, this past summer to do a presentation on the book. Um, so they, they are serving the community in many, many ways. Uh, and the same thing is true for the, the Croswell. The, uh, uh, at both of these theaters, uh, are available for the local civic theater. So the local civic theater presents shows at both of these theaters. The, uh, the Croswell Theater has uh, many similar activities to the, uh, not, not as much and not as extensive and not quite as diverse uh, is my observation, but they are doing many of the same things that the Ramsdale uh, Theater is. Um, the Calumet Theater is under new management and the new management seems to be only interested in bringing in um, country western stars and uh, <laughs> and various rock groups. Um, I, I don't think that at the moment it's it, uh, the uh, the new management has only been in place for for less than a year, I think, or maybe just a year. So it remains to be seen if they expand their activities. But right now, uh, from the newsletters I get, it's uh, it's it, it's what I just mentioned. And they know they're dependent on their community. I mean, the minute that the community uh, decides that they no longer want to go, go in, you know, cross the threshold, they're in big trouble. Um, so they are presenting uh, plays and they are um, presenting various musical groups and they are making their theaters available to the community in many, many ways. Yeah, and their history continues, and it's a history that you do such a great job of presenting in in the book. Um, I think this is probably a good place to leave it. Uh, before we sign off completely, I just wanted to say thanks again for joining us today. Um, I've I've so much enjoyed um, thinking about the book, thinking about the way that the Opera House connects the the rural regions of Michigan to the larger culture and what it does for the communities that it serves. Well, thank you for having me um, do this. I've enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad. James Burton Harris's book, Once Upon a Time at the Opera House, Drama at Three Historic Michigan Theaters, 1882 to 1928, is available at msupress.org, your local bookseller, or wherever else you get your books. You can contact the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Mediha Gross, Dante Smith, Kylene Cave, and the team at MSU Press, especially Elise Jajuga and Julie Riem, for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books. Thanks.